0: Welcome
1: to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. This is episode 75 of this show with Jesse Israel, entrepreneur, record company, guy, startup guy, meditator, bicycle rider, philanthropist. He's a lovely chap. I can't wait for you to listen to him at Jesse, J-E-S-S-E-I-S-R-A-E-L on Twitter is where you can find him. Thank you for being here. You can subscribe to this show in iTunes, uh, on the podcast app on your iPhone. I'm also in SoundCloud now. And if you're on Android, you can listen on Pocket Casts, which I thoroughly recommend as my um, Android listening of choice. Uh, They're an Adelaide bunch as well. So that's, that's pretty cool. I'm on Twitter. You can find me there on Instagram and Facebook. You know where I am. Come on, you're smart. You can also get on my mailing list, osherginsberg.com. And if you want to do want to email me, sendosheremail at gmail.com. I read every single email that comes in. While you are on osherginsberg.com, that's where the entire archive of shows is. I think only the last 50 show up in uh, the podcasting app on iTunes. So the first 25 episodes are all there. If you do like the show, I would ask only one thing. And one thing alone of you, if you like the show, find a friend who doesn't listen yet, grab their phone, show them how to listen to podcasts, and add mine and encourage them to listen to it. That'd be all I would ask for you to do. How is your week? How is your week? Are you doing okay? I've been riding my ass off and I've been loving it. It's been really good. Every now and again, there is a bit of, you know, unbridled aggression from the Sydney drivers, but that's to be expected. I would, uh, as we spoke about last week, cyclist safety, I would, you know, just try if you are getting super frustrated behind a cyclist, uh, just try to imagine what it would be like knowing that you killed them to get to a red light a little faster and just living the rest of your life knowing that. So maybe don't and wait for a safe place to pass rather than nearly running me off the road in Darling Harbour. Uh, that would be nice. Uh, so, yeah there you go. A couple of big work things happening this week. And it kind of got me thinking, um, it kind of got me thinking, I, uh, I've always made my own work. Uh, a lot of people ask me how i got into television or how I got into radio. I chased it down. I chased down my job in radio. I chased down my job in television. Um, and all the work I'm working on now, all the new stuff I'm working on now is stuff that I've created. There's stuff that I'm, I'm, I'm making. And I, and I kind of always have, and, and Jesse and I do talk about this a lot about, what it is to make your own work, what it is to create your own work. Um, like I said, it's how I got into radio, how I got into television, how this next adventure into podcasting and the new projects that are coming that I can't tell you about, but I really want to, how the new projects, uh, that are coming along is that, yeah, you've got to, you've got to make that work yourself. You can't wait for someone to knock on your door and say, oh, one stardom for you, here it is. You've got to go and make it otherwise it doesn't happen. So, uh, yeah, do it for free. Do it because you love it. Eventually, someone will pay for you if it's good. That'll. That's pretty much it. Um, hope your health is good this week. I'm okay to check in. I'm in in this world of of being on on medication occasionally, and on on a few different meds. Occasionally, doctors like to go. What if we had a little bit less of this and a little bit more of that, or a little bit more of these? Ooh, let's try the let's try the red ones. Uh, and they swap you around every now and again, just because it's all about the dosage and the combo. That's that's when it comes to when it comes to meds. And uh, occasionally they'll put one in, they'll take another one out. They'll just try and strike a balance. And recently we took one out, which is nice because that was the one that was causing the weight gain. So that's nice, that's gone. Um, but it does make the days a little, a uh, little more work. Won't lie. Uh, there's a little more work to get through the days. But thankfully I'm able to do that. And uh, like any muscle that you work on, it does get easier to deal with the triggers every time. Uh, but yeah, I just keep doing all that I can do. Everything that I can do in my power, which is, you know, eat right, ride my bike, be kind, do good work and get to bed early. That's pretty much it. That's all I can do, right? And that's pretty much my dream day, to be honest. (laughs) If I I could do that every day, I'd I'd be a happy man. That'd be the best. Um, Yeah. Anyway. Let me tell you about my guest. I love this cat, Jesse Israel. He's a lovely guy. I've known him for a couple of years now. He's on Twitter at Jesse Israel, J-E-S-S-E-I-S-R-A-E-L. He is one of the founders of Cantora Records. When he was in university, I think like second year university, I think he tells a story in the show. He, him and his mate started a record label called Cantora Records and they signed a band called MGMT and the rest is history. But yeah, he did that while he was at university. So he talks, that whole story is quite interesting. And also he talks about how he transitioned from being a solely um, a music label to being a tech startup uh, hub as well, and how he transitioned into that and the value that he brought there, how he married the world of tech and music together, which is very, very interesting. And uh, he and I spoke in December. This conversation is three months old now. We spoke in December last year in New York City. He came to my Airbnb on the Lower East Side on a cold, rainy day. And he talked about how he's in a transitional period in his life uh, and that he has basically this very, very successful record label and startup entrepreneurial business that he'd built for the last nine years. He talked about how he's left an active role in all that to go and pursue something else. He doesn't know what it is yet, which is really interesting, um, that he's, he was in this space of, you know, transitioning into this, this new phase in his life. We also speak about meditation and what role meditation has played in keeping his head cool in tricky times, especially now that he's in limbo. But if you've ever thought about transitioning, about taking the leap, about leaving something that doesn't make you want to jump out of bed in the morning for you don't know what next, and this show is, is for you. So uh, come on to the Lower East Side of of, New- of Manhattan. The, the central heating wouldn't turn on until 3 p.m., so it was pretty cold when he and I spoke. Uh, and we also talk a lot about riding bicycles. He and I have that in common as well. So enjoy this afternoon chat with the always charming, delightful, and inspirational Jesse Israel. <laughs> All right, we're rolling now. <laughs> <laughs> oh hey Jesse! Hey, how are you feeling today? Um, I feel pretty good actually. Yeah. It's good to see you, man. Yeah, it's so great to see you. Um, if I'm looking over here, it's because I've got my notes about you written on my uh, written on my laptop. Cool. So I'm not checking Reddit or anything like that. <laughs> How's the uh, distance? Uh, look, you're good, mate. You were just telling me you're a radio professional. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was. Yeah, where at? WNYU. WNYU. WNYU.
2: What was your show? So <clears throat> the structure there is you want to be in radio at NYU, you got to start on the web platform. It's a WNYU.org uh, station. But I made buddies with someone who had a primo slot on the actual uh, 89.1 FM dial, which broadcast in... Uh, the whole tri-state area, Uh New York, Jersey, Connecticut, 8 to 9 p.m. Friday nights. He was my buddy. I was his intern. His show was called The Abstract, and it was avant-garde hip-hop and turntablism. Yes. And while I did my own show on the web platform, I worked for him and helped him out with his show. Timing just worked out, and within a year, I took over his show. So as a sophomore, um, I was on air, and my show got picked up, in japan for some reason really popular so I was in uh, i was on 20 stations in japan as well as the tri-state area so it's cool i built a following um people would call into the show i'd have people come in and do interviews and and it was it's really what got me into the music industry
1: avant-garde hip-hop and turntableism and i'm guessing this is what 10 years ago yeah. yeah
2: so 10 years ago
1: yeah right around when invisible scratch pickles and things like that were really crushing yeah, Worldwide. It, was,
2: it, was a, yeah it, was, it was a little bit after that, but yeah? it was around that time period, yeah. Wow. Yeah, because that was going on when I was in high school, and this was a, this was a couple years after that. But, yeah, it was, it was that, that realm. Definitive Jux, uh, Aesop bra, Cannibal Ox, Slug, Atmosphere. Little I little saw little Atmosphere
1: playing yeah. a big day out, really. It was really good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good stuff, so, look, I've wanted to ask you this question for a while. How old were you when you were this tall? <laughs> you know, at my
2: bar mitzvah, I was uh, 13 years old and I was 6'2". It was really uncomfortable.
1: <laughs> What's it like being the super tall kid? Because people would have been eye to navel with you.
2: It was, it, it was not great. You know, I, uh, in ninth grade, no one had sprouted yet. Guys and girls, so you know, I'd be at I'd be at high school parties, and I would crouch as I would walk around. Um, I would like you know lower down on my knees just so I didn't feel like such a freak. <laughs> and it wasn't until tenth grade when uh, when my peers started to grow that I was able to really embrace it and love it. But it was an insecurity of mine. PE must have been a nightmare. Oh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I was. Uh, Depend if it was basketball, you know, I could do a thing or two.
1: <laughs> I remember I went to school with a guy who was six six at fourteen. Really? Yeah. Uh, poor guy, I feel his pain. <laughs> Watching him run was like wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you grew up you didn't grow up on the East Coast though, did you? I grew up in Los Angeles. Yeah. In the San Fernando Valley? I grew
2: up in the valley. Um I was in Sherman Oaks up until I was about 10. Folks moved to the West Side, and I spent the, the rest of my years up until NYU in Brentwood. So what do you remember about uh, Sherman Oaks? What do you remember
1: about the Valley? I actually, a, I actually have a lot of love for The Great One Eight. I really do. I never heard it called that. I hear it, don't date The Eight One Eight, but I haven't heard <laughs> it called The Great One Eight.
2: <laughs> it's two very different perspectives, yeah. you know.
1: I lived in the valley for a little while, oh you I did. Loved,
2: I loved it. Where were you Studio city man? Oh, beautiful yeah actually cro- the house i was born in, I was born into was, uh, was in studio city for a couple years It's the best so i i I love the valley I think I, there's a great energy there. I still have most of my doctors out there from when I was a kid. My dentist <laughs> is still out there <laughs> i I work with a really awesome energy healer named Ginger Gregory, and she um she, her sessions are two blocks away from the house that I grew up in. Something, something special about that. So every time I'm in L.A., I go right back to the area I was born. And just do the rounds,
1: dentist, doctor, energy. energy uh, <laughs> 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 very L.A. maneuver.
0: Oh, very me, L.A. maneuver. I went
1: to a party in Brentwood the other night. Yeah, yeah it was uh, nice out there. Yeah, it's a good place. Are your folks still around? Mm-hmm. What do they do? Um,
2: see, my dad My dad was... Uh, he had a movie, a movie marketing business. They made uh, the movie previews and trailers for most of the hits, uh, the blockbuster hits in the '90s and early 2000s. Coming your way uh, this summer. Yeah, yeah. Dan
1: LaFontaine. Did you ever yeah, meet him? Of course. Yeah. Get out.
2: Yeah. You met Dan
1: LaFontaine.
2: Dan. Yeah. Dan LaFontaine
1: did. Sorry, uh, Don LaFontaine.
2: Don LaFontaine did the, um, did the voiceover for my bar mitzvah video and my sister's bar mitzvah video. <laughs>
1: Stop. Stop it. Don LaFontaine, is, he, was, he was a gajillionaire. He made yeah. a lot of money because he had the voice. Yep. I don't mind if you pause this podcast right now and go and Google uh, a video called Five Guys in a Limo. It's uh, him and all the other. The other voiceover guys going to a, the Key Art Awards or something—it's like the opening intro of the voiceover guys yeah. going to a party, and you recognise their voices straight away. Yeah, yeah. I caught a plane with his daughter <laughs> one time. You know, she says, really? "Oh, yeah, she says, oh my, you know, my father was in voiceover." And I looked at her and I was like, "Your father's Dino Fontaine. She goes, "How did you know?" Like, "I know what he looks like." So when I first started voiceover, it was like we whispered his name. Right. You know, because he was the guy. And the great Don. The great
2: Don. You know, that, that, uh, that, that video that you mentioned, my dad created that.
1: <laughs>
2: what? Yeah, he, he concepted that and produced it. My dad was the lead producer of the Key Art Awards for many years. So, and his company would create the content. So that was a film that he made.
1: I, I think he actually may have directed it. Even. I, play that to it every, I play that to yeah, sound yeah. engineers, who, you know, younger guys <laughs> who don't know anything. I was like, check this out. It's 1996. And these guys are just
2: yeah yeah, and that's what their lifestyle was like. You know, Don LaFontaine and some of his peers. You you get up, you go into your limo, and you just get driven around for the day. And you just jump out, record a couple of things, jump back in the limo, go somewhere else, record.
1: Lifestyle, yeah. Well, in the states, unlike Australia, in the states you get paid royalties on TV commercials mm. if you voice them. So your Sprint commercial may air for twelve months. You're getting a check. Mm. It's not a one time, one time fee. Right. So you were exposed to the business a little bit as a kid.
2: Yeah, I was. Well, you know, I went to film school. Right. I, I, want, I, want, I, you know, I was interested in making movies. I was interested in Hollywood. And, you know, My, my dad as, as an entrepreneur and, and what, kind of what he built from scratch and wound up selling while I was still young. It was all inspiring to me. Right. And so when you said, I, I want to go into the business, they were cool with it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't, I didn't want to make movie previews and trailers. I was more interested in filmmaking. Mm-hmm. But that's why I went to NYU to, to go to Tisch for film. Is that tough to get into? Uh, it's pretty tough. It's, it's top two film schools in the U.S. What did you have to do to get in there? I don't know if I can say that over the years.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, actually, um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I really struggled with the SAT. Uh, are you familiar with this, with this test? That's like the, the high school aptitude test. It's really, it's, it, 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 it plays a, a very, Important role in getting into into college. You gotta you gotta nail certain grades to get into certain schools. Yeah, and I struggled with it. Uh, standardized tests—it's not my thing. I'm more of an in-person guy, you know. But um, I was really willing to put in the work to make it happen. To the point where, by a senior year, I was seeing a neurobiofeedback coach three times a week, where he would plug. Uh, eight electrodes into my head and I would sit there in his 1970s style uh, office and I would look into a TV that looks kind of like this one right here. It's, like, it's like an old CRT down you know? here. There's a video <laughs> editor who owns this Airbnb. And uh, I would play a video game using my brain entirely. I would, I would just look at the screen and when I, was, when I would focus, the green spaceship would move forward. When I would lose focus, the purple spaceship with the with the smoke, the smog coming out of its engine would kind of veer off. And it it would train your brain to go into a focused state. And the more focus you would get, the more momentum your your spaceship would create and you would gain points and all that entirely from brainwaves. And it increased my SAT score so much that uh, I was able to, to, to get into NYU, which was, you know, the, the most desirable private school at the time. Maybe still is. I'm not sure. That's amazing. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you did that. Do you still feel the benefits of this training?
2: You know, it's, it's funny you ask. Meditation is an important part of my life, and
1: uh, yeah, we'll get we'll get to that.
2: Yeah, and I uh, there are certain types of meditation that bring me right back to that state, right back to that state. So I can now, if I want to, achieve that same level of focus through something that is free. And that doesn't involve electrodes and 1970s-style offices. And spaceships. <laughs> and
1: spaceships, yeah. Spaceships, rad. Yeah. So what would you say at the moment, what would you say your job description is? Oh, my, my, job, my job description right now? Here man, in December 2014. I
2: got asked this recently. It's a little tacky, but I just said I'm a rider of life right now. R-I-D-E-R? Yeah, yeah, rider of life. <laughs> it's like a cyclone's bike thing. <laughs> oh, no. I, I dig it. I dig it. I'm, uh, I know, I'm, I'm searching. I'm in, a, I'm in a transition period. Got it. Yeah, I'm resetting.
1: For a man that's resetting, you're very calm. Oh, thank you. <laughs> because that's not many people I, get to reset mode and can be this calm. I've
2: <clears throat> got a lot to say about
1: it. It's, it's been eye-opening and it has been challenging for sure. Well, let's, let's lay the groundwork before we get back to this. So what would you say, what was the first business you created? The first business I created? Uh, was Cantora,
2: and I was... It's the record label? Yeah, Cantora started as a record label. I was a sophomore at NYU. What's that, 18? I was 20, I was 19 at the time,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and this is when I was doing my radio show, and I was, I was throwing uh, underage drinking parties in, uh, in the East Village of New York. Which is where we are right now. Right, right. My roommate at the time uh, within our NYU dorm Uh, told me that I needed to listen to this song. And I came, I sat down on his bed. We listened to uh, an MP3 recording. And he said, you're going to listen to this song for the next two weeks, guarantee it. I was like, "All yeah, I'll check it out. Listen to this track. And he was right. Two weeks later, I came to him. I said, dude, I can't stop listening. So we came up with this plan to go and meet with these two musicians who had created this song. And and the guys that had created the song had made it on their computer in their dorm room. And they were not serious musicians. They were um, really just students having fun, kind of experimenting with the pop genre. Uh, it was more of an experiment than a serious thing. The like NYU guys as well? They were at Wesleyan College, uh, which is in Connecticut. Okay. So we got together to see these two guys play a show. The, at the time, they were called The Management, and the song that they had created, they were calling Kids. And we went and we saw him perform it. They plugged in an iPod that had the, uh, the audio track or that had the instrumental. And with two microphones, they sort of sang and rapped the lyrics. And they remember they brought a big plant up onto stage and they put a microphone in front of the plant. It was that, you know, just, just that kind of a vibe. And there's maybe 10 people in the audience. <laughs> this is at. Um, at SUNY Purchase in White Plains, New York. We kind of met midway to to meet these guys. And after the show, we sat down with them. You know, Will and I, my roommate, a couple of 19-year-olds, I was a film student, I didn't know what the hell I was talking about, and said, hey, we'd like to manage you guys. I remember they weren't even really kind of looking at us while we talked, they were kind of heads in the clouds, and they said, all right, sure. So Will and I just started getting the word out there, and, and really we brought an organizational force to the table as much as you know, two college students can. But that's what our value add was. We can organize and get the word out. And while doing so, we met a senior in high school in Los Angeles who was a friend of a friend named Nick. And Nick was out in New York, got in touch with us and took us out to brunch one day and said, "You know, I believe in this band that you guys are working with and I wanna work with you guys. And we were so impressed by his um, his confidence and his energy around the project that we said, sure. So we started a company and we decided that the company we would start would be record label focus instead of management focus. So we started Cantora Records and um, and uh, th- through starting it, and this was, when did we form it? It must've been in May of 2005, I would say. Something like that, yeah. Uh, around May of 2005. But um, uh, yeah, so through starting Cantor Records, we, record, we recorded the management's first album. Out. At the time, they were called the management. Now they're known as MGMT. There were some legal issues, had to change the name. But we had a buddy who was some sort of an intern at a nice studio at Midtown. And we were able to get the band into the studio when he uh, you know, sort of had like, off hours availability, you know, late at night kind of thing. And we got the guys in there and they recorded kids and they recorded Time to Pretend, writing lyrics to Time to Pretend in this in this studio. And we recorded four other tracks. We made the Time to Pretend EP, which is the first official MGMT release. And by August of 2005, uh, we released that EP to the world through iTunes and through a tour that the guys were, went on with the band of Montreal and it just clicked. Of Montreal's following, loved MGMT and, um, uh, and they started to build an organic fan base.
1: So you didn't do any physical pressings?
2: Uh, I'm sorry, we did do physical pressings as well and that's what we sold on the tour. You know, and that, that was pretty simple math. It was, you know, it cost about a dollar to make one of these CDs. We'd sell it for seven bucks on the road. They'd sell them all out. We had some profit, we made some t-shirts, same thing. Yeah. And we just kind of repeated that cycle as they toured. They went on three, tour, three tours with of Montreal, three different tour segments. And that's how we, that's how we created the foundation of the business. Uh-huh. And you know- And independent the whole time. Fully, fully. And we had no idea what we were doing. You know, we set up a little website. People could buy the albums from our website. So we were, there we were like in our, our dorm rooms, packing CDs, mailing them out, and, and you know we could really feel the momentum around it. I mean, we, we believed in them and their music from the start, but it was cool to see it just start to f- slowly spread. And what was, uh, what was really exciting for us was Columbia Records became interested because uh, Will, my business partner, uh, at the time, he had new roommates. We weren't living together anymore at this point. And one of his roommates was an intern at Columbia and brought our, our EP into Columbia um, and, uh, you know, they pay attention to interns there, I guess. And they liked MGMT and they were interested in signing them to some e-label they were creating at the time. Um, but the guys didn't want to do it. And, uh, <clears throat> without having seen the band play live and with having only heard six songs that we recorded on this EP, they came back and pretty much said, we want to find a way to make this work. And, uh, um, did a pretty cool deal with them. Um, and uh, we wound up upstreaming them to Columbia Records. And there was was a really really distinct moment that I think is worth sharing. Uh, We recorded that first album for $400. We each chipped in a little bit of our own money to make it happen. And when Columbia had signed them, part of the deal was that they were considering, Columbia was considering buying our original album off of us so they would own it. Um, because of some sort of fluke deal. We actually owned it in perpetuity. <laughs> so um, they offered us $17,000 for an album that cost us $400. Bucks. And at the time, although I'd mentioned they had a, an organic fan base, it's, there was nowhere where, where it ultimately became. So $17,000 was incredible. It's a huge return on our investment. All these things we could do with seventeen dollars couple of college students. <laughs> and... Um, the deal wound up falling apart and we were left with this first album. And I remember thinking to myself, man, we'd have to sell about 60,000 songs on iTunes to make 17K. It seemed impossible. Anyways, it was the best thing that ever happened because when MGMT really blew up, when Columbia really put the resources into them, you know, by the time we were graduating, uh, MGMT was on every radio station or all the places we were hanging out and we were selling hundreds of thousands of MP3s before we'd even graduated, you know, and it's gone on to sell, uh, our EP has gone on to sell, you know, quite, quite a bit. And it's what fully funded our business. It allowed us to take a dorm room label and turn it into a, you know, a, a full fledged record label for us, a full fledged record, independent record label as right after college. And, um, mgmt has been able has has remained a ban on our roster because we never
1: you know sold that album so it really worked out beautifully that's quite a story but i can't imagine that you know you went to school to be a film student how did your classes go with all this going on it was cool man there
2: there was um i was able to to cross relate a lot of it a lot of it um you know, when you're, running, when you're running a business as a student, especially a creative business, there's so much thinking on your toes. And you have to be resourceful. And a lot of it is, you know, organizing and bringing in creative partners. That was a big part of how we, how we grew our business. <clears throat> we knew a lot of creative people. So we were able to really uh, create an impact when we worked with musicians because I knew great filmmakers at NYU. And we knew great, you know, audio engineers from... The music program over there. So while I was a student, I was just able to bring people in to collaborate. And uh, I, could, I was able to speak about our business in class. I was able to produce all of our music videos, which was very relevant to what I was doing as a film student. <clears throat> so there was a lot of crossover. And a huge part of filmmaking is is thinking on your toes and, and being creative, especially on a budget. So I, I learned a lot about both of those two worlds and was able to sort of cross-pollinate in that way. You must have
1: had some good parties,
2: man. We had some great parties. <laughs> <clears throat> For years we had some great parties. But I'll tell you, the thing that was most valuable from film school, um, and still it holds true, and it's you know, such, such an important piece of, of what I do now, is I learned storytelling. And it's not that it needed to be on the medium of film. Storytelling is how we would get people excited about bands. Storytelling is how we would create interest around events and concerts. And ultimately, once we started investing in startup technologies and building our own startup technologies, storytelling played a critical role in building interest around those projects. So there's
1: a lot I can still point to from film school, even though I never wound up doing film. Yeah, because Cantora didn't just stay a record label. We'll get to that in a second, but I just wanted to, you mentioned MGMT is still going, here we are nearly 10 years later. Mm -hmm and there's not many bands that have a 10-year uh, run. You're lucky right. if you get two albums. Right. Yeah, you're really fun. lucky. Mm-hmm. If you get three, good for you. Pop some kids out, they're going to college. But if you're lucky if you get two. Part of the things that you, write, that you do is you work with artists to build sustainable businesses. Mm-hmm. How does that work in this day where music essentially is free?
2: I'll tell you, it's not easy. Um, a, a, a lot of it for us had had become how do we look at technology and how do we look at, at, at other business models and, you know, revenue streams to take advantage of the relationships um, and the creative output in the music industry and plug into technology in new ways. So, you know, a, example of that could be finding a great technology startup, um, working with their team, oftentimes really intelligent people who understand startup culture, but don't really know how to push into an entertainment space. So we could sort of act as a middle person between music industry and entertainment and technology founders. And we would be able to bring an artist and get an artist involved with a technology startup and create some sort of an exclusive partnership. If that was equity for the artist, in that technology in exchange for the artist, you know, doing something special with that technology, or if it was just a partnership that would, you know, generate income in a meaningful way. We were looking at how we could sort of connect the dots and how we could uh, help technology founders um, navigate the music industry. And a a lot of that came back to uh, musicians and looking at, you know, new ways to create businesses for musicians. So tech played a big part in it. And just being smart about, uh, you know, traditional, Release strategies, you know, being creative and innovative about how you market a record, how you find partnerships that other people wouldn't think of, and, um, and ultimately keeping things really tight because it's really tough to make, to make a living as a musician until you, you know, really start to get that momentum. You know, we've worked with, I think, over 15 bands at Cantora, and uh, a lot of them have, have done really well. But you know, only a, hand, a small handful have been able to really support themselves in a meaningful way, and those are. That's kind of the numbers. You know, there's a little bit of a gamble involved with, with a record label. It's like you know, you sign 15 bands. You hope, you know, you you can make a couple of them pop.
1: Well, that's always been the model, though. That yeah. one Mariah Carey album paid for 100 other Sony records mm-hmm. that you know, and tours and promo that didn't hit. Sure, that's how it works. Sure, so it's a weird model. It's a weird business model, but it can't survive in this this modern day. What are some examples of uh, pairing artists with, with tech that you can talk about? Um, there's
2: a couple. So it's probably, I, th- I think it's worth mentioning um, how we work with startups. Is that jumping the gun for what you have? No, no,
1: no, go right ahead. It's your show, mate, do whatever you want.
2: You know, we, um, we, had, we had an inkling that there was an opportunity to do more with our relationships and understanding within the music industry than just selling albums and concert tickets. And this is about four years ago, maybe three four years ago. Um, and we knew that there was something with technology. We, we, we had this period where we were just kind of exploring other business models. And eventually we realized that, and I, I was doing some advising work for um, an angel investment group where uh, they would they would come to me and say, "What do you think about an investment in, in this in this technology startup?" And then I could bring it to people in the industry and say, "Would you use this?" Hey, you're a producer. Would you use? Hey, you're a manager. What do you think about this? So able to get meaningful feedback, and if they did invest, I could connect dots, and I would be able to see someone in the music industry with a new technology, something cool could happen from it. So my business partners and I decided that that we could do that effectively as a, as a component of our own business by raising our own technology fund and making angel investments in startup technologies that we knew could benefit the music industry in some way. And our involvement would be twofold. We would give them some capital under 100K to help them develop their beta products in the same way that we would give under 100K to a band to help them record an album. And then... Through our relationships in the music industry, we would help that technology start up by connecting dots. Oh, this technology makes sense for this music festival. We'd get them in the door with Coachella. Oh, this technology makes sense for this arena tour. Send them on the road with uh, Swedish House Mafia. Um, And I'll give an example in a second. Um, But what we were able to do was create case studies and unique marketing opportunities for these technology startups. Again, just like we would with bands when we had an album created. I mean, they really, the parallels were really strong. It was, just, it was just a different asset. But if it was a band and an album or if it was a startup founder and their technology, we're really doing a lot of the same thing. It was just, it was just using our relationships and our strategy of music a little bit differently. Um, but we found that that was really meaningful for startups. And it, it, it excited us more in many ways because we were doing it for bands for a while and it's kind of feeling like we were hitting a wall. But here we were going to the same people we always worked with, but instead of saying, listen to this band, this is what we think we can do with it, it was check out this startup technology. There's nothing else like it out there. This is how it will benefit your tour or your festival or your album release or your label or management company, whatever. And we found that technology uh, startup founders were willing to give us equity for that involvement, more equity that we we would get for investing capital into their companies. And we get up to five times more equity just for our strategic involvement. So in addition to building out a portfolio, or sorry, a roster of musicians, we also built out a portfolio of technology startups that we invested in. And it was most beautiful when we could connect the dots, when the startups that we invested in could benefit the artists that we had on our label. To go back to your question, and that I've kind of laid the groundwork for what we were doing. Couple examples come to mind. We were, we were working with, uh, and still advise, um, a, a technology called Sonic Notify. They're now called Signal 360. It's how we first met, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it's a cool technology at the time they were really focused on, and they were ahead of their time. It's, now that beacons have really taken off, they were doing beacons first. Um, send a high frequency sound wave through a speaker or a beacon that us humans could not hear but our smartphones could hear. And are able to deliver content and contextual messages in real time based on where someone was standing in proximity to a speaker. And when we met them, they were, they were looking to push their product to, you know, grocery stores, you know, pharmacies. Buy this toothpaste over that toothpaste when you walk by the toothpaste aisle. <clears throat> and we looked at it as, well, maybe the best way to break this thing <clears throat> is to focus on entertainment. It's a little less creepy. Maybe there's some real value add we could bring to the table. So we took Sonic Notify and we worked with their founding team and plugged them into a couple of different concert experiences where you would get the name of a song sent to your phone in real time or you'd have access to a video or a Spotify playlist that the musicians put together as a little added content after you left the concert. And you know, we were just kind of doing tests. But um <clears throat> there was a there's a Swedish house mafia tour, arena tour that was going on at
1: the time. I think it was their final tour or whatever that, whatever that was.
2: And- um, yeah, They
1: played Madison Square Garden. It was, I think the first and last DJs. So. Right. Humongous. they humongous. Yeah, huge, Madison huge. Garden, yeah. So <clears throat> we wanted to do an activation with Sonic Notify
2: that would, that would get the technology out there and also really benefit the band and their fans. So the concept that we put together with Sonic Notify's team was, um, let's create a crowd screen if everyone holds up their phone through beacon technology really through sending this 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 frequency through the PA system at these massive arenas we can speak to phones and have phones display a certain message so everyone over here on the left has some sort of a, a you know a, a purple spirally effect and everyone over here has you know green fireworks on their phones those are really corny examples but get the get the picture so people were able to at certain moments, hold their phones up within the crowd and create these these sort of shared visualizations that would react to the music. Um, And it was something that Swedish House Mafia was able to promote on their tour and something that actually got quite a bit of traction. And um, it was cool because Sonic Notify was getting paid for that and um, getting a lot of awareness for their their technology. And Swedish House Mafia was doing something innovative on their tour that you 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 couldn't see uh, otherwise. So that was a cool fit. Sonic Notify went on to, they're, they're no longer working with musicians and, and, and tours. Now they're, um, they power some NBA teams and sort of their, their crowd-reactive stuff. And they do in aisle advertising.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer.
2: uh, retailers so music was just a, a springboard to create awareness and case studies but they got their toothpaste.
1: they got their toothpaste after all they got their toothpaste after all <laughs> so this sounds like a pretty exciting part of the the world to be working in and you've just extracted yourself from it yeah yeah what was the day you went, oh, I need to do something else? Because that's a pretty, you know, anyone listening might go, hang on, you're fusing these two things together. People are giving you equity. Things are crushing. Why would you want to leave? So right. what happened? What was it going on? So a couple of things that led to that. The
2: first was um, I learned that I was really good at helping startups and working with startups. I became a, an advisor to many startups. And as our company invested in more startups, I was able to, you know, especially with partnerships through fundraising to kind of creative partnerships, I was uh I was I was having an impact. So are my business partners. Um, and I learned that I didn't really want to be a, an angel fund. I didn't really want to do, you know, VC work. After doing it with four or five startups, I realized I wanna put this energy into my my own startups, not other people's startups. Um, Cause it was like school, you know, going through and working with these products. And we were music industry guys. This, this opened us up to the technology world. And suddenly we were part of a whole other industry, an industry that I liked a lot more. <clears throat> it was more collaborative. It was way more open-minded. There was a lot more room for growth, in my opinion. Um, so I just found it more exciting. You can so, scale a lot more and you get paid for each unit. Sure. <laughs> sure um you know i i uh i think the collaboration component was the thing that got me the most you know yeah. i would leave a meeting with someone in the technology world and the meeting would end with them saying jesse i gotta introduce you to this person that person and this person yeah. in the music industry there's maybe four or five meetings over my 10-year career in the music industry where a meeting ended that way right you know, and, and one, one theory for that, you know, I, I think in the music industry, people really want to hold on tight to the musician. There's not a lot of collaboration. It's usually one label. It's usually one or two managers. It's one booking agent and everyone's fighting for that band. Whereas in the technology world, investors will bring each other in, you know, it's like when a, when a startup's raising money, it's about pulling in different people to come and help and support. So there's something about a collaborative spirit, maybe just in the nature of the business models, that has something to do with um, why there's more of a focus on collaboration versus the music industry that was really, you know, keep your cards close to your chest. That really appealed to me. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was one thing. Um, <clears throat> the other thing was that, so, so anyway, so we, we actually wound up expanding the business to start focusing on our own projects in-house, which is what the company focuses on now. Um, a couple projects in particular, the company's really narrowed in. Um and uh so I, I started to enjoy being able to focus on our own technologies and our building our own businesses. And there's a big emphasis on partnership there. But when this was going on, we were calling the shots, as opposed to I'll bring in partners and then someone else is calling the shots. Sometimes kind of burning bridges with relationships and that kind of that whole thing happens. So the first thing I realized was I wanna. I want to do this stuff and I want it to be focused. I don't want to invest in a bunch of different technologies and help 10 different companies and sign a band here and build something there. I was really getting hungry for focus. The other thing was that I found that my heart was just falling out of love with the music industry. And, um, it, uh, you know, in in the same way that you can fall out of love Mm -hmm. in a relationship with someone and Actually, there's there's so many analogies to,
0: yeah.
2: as a, a lot of parallels to being in a relationship with somebody. So did you grieve? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, you know, it was it was it was strange because the logic. So, <laughs> I, there there there's there, my buddies and I when we talk about relationships and dating, we talk about uh, the three L's: logic, lust, and limerence. The logic would be when you're dating someone, the logic would be, oh, I like these details about them. They have money or they have a cool job or they are pretty or they have a great family or not. Logic. Lust is that, that sexual chemistry. And then limerence, which is, which is my favorite, which is that X factor. It's that thing that just like makes you want to be with the person. It's that thing that just, you know, makes you want to hang out with them for a couple minutes in between a meeting just so you can say Hi. And I think about that a lot when I'm in a relationship with somebody, and with my nine my my nine and a half years at Cantora, I sort of experienced all those things. The lust piece, I'm not really sure how to fit into this analogy. (laughs) I'm sure I'm sure it's there in some way, but the it'll be
1: there in the deal. Come on, there's a bit (laughs) of there's some testosterone
2: in deal making. There is, but the logic was was getting stronger and stronger. By the time I was ready to leave the company, the logic was at its strongest. The company was so well recognized. We were, we were becoming leaders in music and technology. We were making more money than we ever had before. And I was paying myself more than I ever had before. I had incredible business partners. Some of the most talented guys, beautiful office space, all that stuff. That was nine years of work. The logic was strong, but there was no limerence. By this point, I, there, was, I, there was there was no tingle. There was nothing that made me want to get out of bed and go work in the in the music world, and there was, um, uh, you know, there was there was nothing there that that really, or very a very small amount of stuff there that really, you know, made me want to give my gift as an entrepreneur to to this field, and it was really hard for me because for, an, for many months I could feel it, but I couldn't articulate it. And I felt like I was sort of forcing my effort and and I couldn't, and I I wasn't able to do that. It's not, it's not in my personality type. So I felt like I was giving 30% of what I can give. I started to feel complacent and it wasn't right because I had business partners who were so passionate and I had investors who expected a lot out of us. And I was taking a salary and, you know, I just, I, I was, I was doing okay work. Actually my final year there, I put together some really meaningful deals that, that, I think will be really important for the business but it it just it it felt forced so when it came time to uh, going to our investors and raising a a little bit more money uh, last year and uh it was about a year ago from right now actually i knew i had to act on it because that would have been another few years of commitment and i had to i had to be honest so i started the conversation with my business partners and it was uh took about four months to make sure all the partnerships were in good standing, and uh, and reach a point where I could start to move to a part time position. And Now I'm, I'm an owner and, and, and advisor where it makes sense, but I'm no longer full
1: time there. And you, like you said, you now you're riding, you're riding life. Uh, yeah. You just got your uh, got your ears out, sniffing around for the next thing, waiting for the world to come to you. In that process, you took a trip to Africa right. this year. Why did you want to go there? Well,
2: To be honest, I went to Africa because it was a family vacation. My parents wanted to do the whole safari thing, so I said, "Yeah, let's do it." I was really excited for it. But I wanted to stay there once my family had left and experience um, just just you know local living, which I think is such a cool way to get to know a place, especially when when there's a lot of you know luxury happening to be able to, you know, hang out with locals and, and, uh, and see a community from the ground up is always really eye opening. And I had, I have a great friend who um, named Nyla Rogers who owns a, runs a Rundon nonprofit, a really successful nonprofit called Mama Hope. And she trains young people in America to raise money for causes that they build in Africa. They become global advocate for causes. And, and Nyla and her, her nonprofit, they have uh, I think over 35 different projects building rec centers and orphanages and health centers and, in different parts of Africa. So I told her, hey, I'm gonna be in Africa and I love working with kids. Um, what well, makes sense. So she plugged me into one of her projects, which is an orphanage that they've been building and over 400 children there. And um, Which country? In Tanzania, uh, outside of a city called Moshi. So I got to spend some time working with kids and teaching first grade. And I brought a couple of soccer balls. And it was 400-plus kids. had They didn't have a single ball at the time. So, you know, two soccer balls meant soccer tournaments for all these kids. I mean, they're so stoked.
1: <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was an incredible time. And what did you— uh- what did that leave you with? What did that experience leave you with? Well,
2: a <clears throat> couple things. It actually started. I was looking at play culture because I learned while I was there through some local leaders that play culture often gets overlooked, at least in this this part of Tanzania that I, where I was. Um, and play culture is critical. Having having fun as a child is so important, and that's why I wanted to bring soccer balls and I brought jump ropes and. And otherwise, it's not like these kids were unhappy. These were actually incredibly happy kids. They, 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 it seemed to me like they were able to have fun with anything, just a little bit of sand. They could play games in the sand and stuff. But I, I started to become interested while I was there in how we could you know, make play culture juicier for these kids. And I was thinking about bicycles because I've been leading this, this bike club, bicycle club for the past year. And now it's a year and a half. Um, which is essentially a group of over 1,300 people between New York, LA, and San Francisco that come together, ride bikes, uh, meet new people through, you know, adventures on two wheels. And um, I was thinking a lot about the bike
1: club. We're called the Cyclones. Thank you for naming it after an Australian storm. I appreciate that. (laughs) Sorry about that. No, 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 it's great. It's awesome. I mean, it's the same thing as a hurricane. It just spins the other way.
2: (laughs) So I was thinking about bikes. And I was thinking about how, by far, the most fun that I've had, and I think a lot of people who are in a bike club, the most fun has come from these big group rides that we do. It's pretty fun. It's yeah. pretty fun you know, when you ride with a bunch of people. It's, there's just something special about it. something great about it. And uh, so I was thinking about how I could, how I could give that gift to, to some of these students. Um, so with the orphanage I was at, I, was, I spoke to their headmaster and I said, hey, look, if I got you guys a couple bikes, would it be valuable for you and uh, one thing i was sensitive about going into was making sure that if i'm going was gonna have some sort of charitable, charitable component to my trip there or after my trip there that it fit into a priority of the community and they said yeah i mean that'd be amazing um said if we had bicycles we could we could do these bike programs where kids could uh have bicycle tournaments and we could teach them how to ride bikes and, I said, oh, that sounds really fun. And we started talking about it more. And he said, you know, to be honest with you, these bikes will also really help us to school because, uh, you know, s- sometimes it can take a while to get to places. If we need to copy some papers, it can take hours. But with a bicycle, you can run an errand like that. And it means we have a staffer on board that otherwise would be gone. And we said, oh, that sounds important. It also, can take hours to get to a hospital. This could really help with with transportation emergencies. Started talking more. And and just sort of while we were developing this sort of really loose idea while I was out there, I was meeting different locals. And four or five times had come up in conversation. And I'd met peers who, when they were young, were walking many miles to get to school. Um, I met a handful of people that were walking anywhere from 10 to 15 kilometers. That's up to 10 miles. One way to get to school, that's like walking from JFK to Manhattan, Um, just one way. And they were pretty much used to it. It's it's the way that they were raised. A lot of times that meant running for one hour because walking for four hours takes a while. (laughs) And what comes with that is I'm still able to get to school, still able to be a happy student, still able to be uh, a bright student, but some limitations come with that. Students were. I found as I started look, looking more into this this commuter issue that students get get taught, were getting exhausted in class and often fall asleep in class, and that um, when they get home after these long walks, it's dark out and, and a lot of these rural areas in Tanzania there's no electricity, so doing homework is not realistic. So it's just it was it was the limitation to students, you know, reaching their academic academic potential. So a little light bulb went off and I was like, oh, there's all these issues around. Um, well, bikes could benefit many things. What is the most important? Is it creating play culture? Is it helping with transportation emergencies? Is it identifying good students and allowing them to reach their potential? And I just spoke to the locals about it. I and mean, I spoke to, to people that were on the ground to help me determine what was most valuable. And what came back to me was let's create a solution to incentivize students to work hard and help them get to school by offering them bicycles. So what that boils down to is one rural school gets five to 10 bicycles. Students are told at the start of the year, I'm sorry, at the start of the semester, if you do well in class, you qualify to access a bike that you will uh, be able to use for one semester. So students are excited, they're willing to work harder, And then for the students that get the bicycles, they're able to get to school more easily. So they're able to work harder. And there's a program that the communities are setting up to figure out the best way to cycle that. So it it benefits, essentially one bike will benefit 10 students. So after learning about this, sort of putting this program together and finding really trustworthy partners, because there are a lot of nightmares in regards to Bringing bicycles to Africa, you know, bikes that get delivered to a rural community and, and within one minute they're all stolen. I've heard some really bad stories, so I had I had to make sure I had good partners, which which I'm confident I have. We've identified 15 schools, and the plan was all right. Let's do, uh, you know, five to 10 bikes, 15 school communities. We'll roll it out. We'll start with five bicycles. Uh, sorry, we'll start with five schools. To kind of pilot this program. And the way we'll raise the money for it is through the Cyclones Bike Club. So when I got back after a, a big 10-week 10, 10 travel, Africa, Europe, some other places, I started speaking about this initiative on our Cyclones Bike Rides. And, you know, we get about 150 people per ride. About 10 to 15% of the total group can show up on a ride. So there I was, the start of every ride in, in the fall, talking about this cause and saying, hey, if this speaks to you, talk to me. And because we are a, a pretty large group of connected, talented, creative people, I was able to build a team of about 60, 60 Cyclones who had different skills and things that they were willing to contribute to this campaign. So with about 60 Cyclones, we built this great video. We put together an Indiegogo campaign. We had Logos made, beautiful photos put together. We announced this thing last month to the Cyclones community And the messaging around it was, Cyclones, this is our cause. It's not a support Jesse's cause. This is if this thing speaks to you, share it. Tell people about this bike club that you're a part of. Tell people about how it's impacted your life and how through this you're able to benefit other people. And it was the coolest thing to witness because our community treated this thing like, like it was their own, which it is. And this is the Cyclones Bike Share of Tanzania. And uh, we raised all the money we needed in nine hours. You know, we needed needed 20K. And I sent out an email and everyone just shot it out there. And I was on 600 of 600 people put this thing on Facebook. So it just had this incredible net effect. You know, people were chipping in 30 bucks here, 100 bucks there. Get a t-shirt, get a hat, you know, the usual Indiegogo thing. And, uh, you know, we've gone on. Our campaign actually ends tonight. But we've gone on to more than double our goal. I mean, we're at like 47K right now. So, you know. 20K allowed us to impact 1,000 students over the course of the next couple of years through these bike share programs. We'll be able to more than double that. And because of the extra cash, we're now looking at um, sustainable business solutions that involve bicycles. It's not confirmed, but what I'm looking into now is actually partnering with different bicycle shops in rural areas, giving them stipends and essentially creating like a Cyclones bike shop partnership where these, these local bike shop communities can hire people to repair bikes, um, sell bikes, and we can source the bikes that we have built, which are being built in Africa, in Tanzania. We'll go through these these bike shop partners.
1: Why so go for local bikes?
2: What? Why go for local bikes? We wanna support the local economy as much okay. as we can. You know, it's like, it's, it's like if, if we're gonna bring $47,000 into, or we have $47,000 to spend and it will impact a lot of people, why not? Push that money into the yeah. lo- the local economy, so that was important. The bikes themselves don't come from Tanzania, but they're purchased by locals in Tanzania, who then hire people to build their bicycles.
1: Right.
2: So yeah, so
1: that so that's that's the program we put together. As it feels like that's um, in alignment a little more than. The three L's as a part of this, you think? <laughs> yeah. Still not sure
2: about the lust piece, but I think it's there somewhere.
1: I'm telling you, man. <laughs> the lust can be there in the magic of you know that many people kicking in to yeah, your
2: campaign. That's true. That's true. Uh, absolutely. No, you're right. You're right about that. that, that and that, that, was, that was the coolest thing to see about the, the launch of this campaign Seeing how people stepped up and yeah. just seeing how many people supported this thing, were touched by this thing, just seeing it grow, and it reminded me that, you know, community is a really powerful tool for creating change, for creating impact. Yeah, you know, and as as the cyclones grows and as we continue to do these rides, and we're in three cities now with more to come, um, I think this will be this will be a really meaningful for, meaningful part to what we do. It's not just Riding bikes and meeting great people and having these adventures on two wheels. There's a there's a cause component that we will support as a group moving forward. And this was a, a great first run. I'd love to do a Sydney one for you, man. I would love to make that happen.
1: <laughs> I'm there from March. I'm there for a couple I'm, I'm there in March for a couple of months. So it
2: would be incredible.
1: It'd be yeah, we could do that. Let's go global, man. Just wondering where we could do it in Sydney. Yeah. What do you normally do? You, you do a round trip and then eat at the end or you do point to point and then eat at the end. Gotta do round trip. Yeah.
2: If you do point to point, it messes people up too much. Got it. You got to return to where you start. We used to eat at the end, but it's too big now. 150 people all eating somewhere. You know, it's not realistic. So, what we—I mean—we're—we're an instant party. So I'm able to reach out to buddies who are promoters and say, "Hey, our ride ends at 9 p.m. on Saturday. I'm going to show up with 150
1: people. Can we have some free alcohol? Sure. (laughs) Right. Okay." We'll figure, we'll figure out, I'll talk to you about that later. <laughs> but I've got, I've got uh, two bikes down in Sydney, so. Uh.
2: Well, you know, my first experience on a tandem bike was when I stayed with you at your place.
1: Yeah, That's right, you Schwinn rode tandem. my Schwinn Tango. Yeah. How good's the Schwinn Tango? Incredible, incredible bicycle. She's, uh, seen some, she's seen some miles, that girl. I bought her from the rental place down the road for 100 bucks. Really? Yeah. You that for a for 100 bucks? Yeah, and then I put 175 worth of brakes on it. It's worth it. It's a gorgeous Yeah, pint, she's done 10,000 miles. Yeah. It's so good. Cup holders. It's
2: beautiful. Yeah. Every now and then, I'll take a tandem on a Cyclone's ride and invite a very special friend to join.
1: Well, that's the thing. I was, because I don't drink, I needed to have something that I could take girls on dates sure because the best part about a tandem is you can talk you can have exactly. a full conversation on a tandem right. you can let her drive you can drive right 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 if she doesn't want to pedal she can put her feet up totally if and their best thing is if, if someone doesn't know and i've had a, a girl on the back of my bike that does never had never ridden a bike before because you do all the work right if they've been You're on a bike front. at the yeah, gym yeah. that's all do you know how to move your feet in a pedal yep sure great
2: yep and Let's then say, we're away handle the balance yeah. I'll be honest with you. Everything you just said, I experienced on your tandem when yeah. I borrowed it for those 10 days. It's great, right? Incredible.
1: And the best, I put a bell on the back so that... Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's, two, there's a name for it, Captain and Stoker. <coughs> so I, I wanted to put a bell on the back so that... You know, because I'm a big fan of... I'm a dinger. I'll ding at you. Right. I want you to ding back at me. Right. Love I love that. I love a ding. I'm, I'm hello, hello on the ride all the time, always waving at people. It's a beautiful instrument. It is, and so I put a bell on the back so that they could be a dinger as well. It's perfect. Be a it? dinger. It doesn't cost. Doesn't take anything. They don't have to say anything. Guy. Just move your finger and go ding. It. Right. If I ding at you, ding back. We're both on bikes. I've got a dinger on my road bike on my fancy middle-aged man carbon fiber bike. I've <laughs> seen it. I put a bell on it. <laughs> And people look at me like, what are you going to bell on that for? And I'm like, you don't, you don't know the Santa Monica boardwalk, man. I gotta-. Yeah, that's a life or death situation. You've got to you have that. Ding. You, I should have to shout out. Hi, oh, excuse me. You're coming right. through, you've got to smile. All people get <laughs> super, super mad. You know, something that, you, that I'd love for you
2: to see at some point, there's a, there's a new tradition in the cyclones. Really. Yeah. It's about eight, six, six, eight months old. Every ride now, we find some large open area where we lead the group and get into a giant circle where we, we bike in a giant circle. We call it a cyclone. Fun. And while, we, while you got 100 plus people cycling in this large circle, everyone is doing their bells. And it creates this beautiful oh. dingy galaxy of, of laughter and,
1: oh, and, so uh, and bell sounds. Yeah, it's
2: wonderful. That is and it's so a special great. moment.
1: All right, I'm going to make one happen down in Sydney. I'm yeah, to do it. I'm, I don't know if I can find a hundred, but I can find enough. I'm sure. Uh, it builds, man. You
2: know, you know. I mean, it was 15 people on the first ride. All right, I can get 15. Grew from there.
1: I don't think all, be a problem. all word of mouth. It wouldn't be a problem getting 15. So we've uh, we've talked for a while yet, but I I do want to talk to you about one other very important thing mm. that you've given to me that I know plays a big part in your in your life, and that is meditation. Mm. I've had. Uh, my meditation teacher, Light, on this show, he came on, I think it was like episode 21 or something like that, whom cool. um, you introduced me to. Mm-hmm. When did meditation come into your life? I'm, You know, if you're the Southern Californian, Sacramento Valley, San, San Fernando Valley guy who's going to the, the doctor putting calipers on your brain controlling video games and <laughs> with an energy healer, I'm imagining that meditation wasn't too much of a step from there. How early, how early did you know about meditation?
2: Um, well, let's see. I introduced it into my life four years ago. It was right around the period that I mentioned earlier <laughs> when I was interested in, in pushing into technology and I was burning out running a record label. I kind of brushed over this when we were speaking earlier, but I had a, a pretty much a breakdown where, and it was all based on career and identity, and you know, I was around 25 at the time. So I was just like, I don't want to be running this record label. This you know, I want to do more. I'm interested in, in technology. I had no idea how to get there. I'd been this label had defined me my whole life, and or not my whole life, but you know my adult adult life. And I just I was I conf- was faced with this giant question mark. I just didn't know what was next. And as a con- control freak, and as someone who's had this this business and work purpose to sink into since I was a student. At that point in my life, the question mark just totally terrified me and I kind of fell apart. So I started looking for ways to better manage my anxiety around the unknown and around what I was going through. So I started looking into meditation. I did did the the Shambhala Institute as a course here in New York, I think in other cities as well. It's a really disciplined style of meditation. It's different than what you and I practice now, which is Vedic meditation. But uh, yeah, the, the Shambhala meditation was the first thing I tried out. Um, and I was just practicing. It's, you know, you, you, you sit in the way that you see meditators sit and that kind of uncomfortable, you know, no back support, legs crossed. And it's, it's an eyes open practice. And when thoughts come to you, you sort of label them, you say thinking. And the hope is that you reach a point of complete stillness, which is what a lot of people think of when they think of meditation. Lots of meditations that that don't involve that. Um, anyways, I was so disciplined and willing to try that I went with that, that style of meditation for about, I don't know, eight months. And I started by doing three minutes a day, every morning, eyes open. And then I, um, uh, once I reached about three weeks of nailing that, I started to do um, 10 minutes and then I got to about 20 minutes a day. And the benefits were almost instant. With that style of meditation, I would walk into my office just kind of feeling like I was floating. And I was able to start to really put some of these ideas around technology into play, music and technology into play. And I was able to actually reach a point where I just sort of had faith in myself and felt good about the future and kind of let go of the fear around it. And, uh, and that's when the whole technology funding, Cantor Labs and all that stuff you know, uh, blossomed. And it was right around the time I started meditating. Now, what I practice now is what I recommend for most modern people. And it's totally what I'd recommend for anyone listening here that's interested in meditation. Vedic meditation, which is what our buddy Light teaches, is a style of meditation that's designed for people who live in houses as opposed to what I was practicing, which was originally designed for monks, people who have lived monastic lifestyles who tend to live in caves and away from society, where not thinking uh, is maybe a little bit more attainable, pretty much impossible, <laughs> at, least, at least in it, the way that we live our lives. So with Vedic meditation, there's some changes. You sit comfortably, you have back support. The goal is to not, not think, you try not to think, you think more. You actually sit comfortably and you let your thoughts come and you're given a mantra, which is a Sanskrit word that resembles a sound in nature, and, uh, and that mantra sort of takes you past your thoughts and brings you to this ultra rested state that has done wonders for me in regards to stripping stress out of your body, kind of clears the gunk that can tend to exist between our guts and our brains, and allows you to just sort of connect with who you are without the indecision, without the fear of the unknown, without the... The inability to adapt to change. Now I'm not. I've been doing this for you know a small amount of time, considering how old I am and uh, how much older I plan to be. But so I'm not. You know, it's not like I've nailed all this stuff. But the foundation it's created in, in these three years of doing Vedic meditation has been um, uh, really transformative.
1: How does it manifest in your your day to day? Or like, what's different? now than what it used to be
2: well the coolest thing about it is that it it,
1: well there there are a lot of
2: things that are amazing i'll I'll point out the three things that that i love the first one is that it creates so much rest in your body that you know i could i could go to music festivals and do the whole thing where i was drinking and not sleeping and as long as i would get my my 20 minute meditations in twice a day while i was there which was totally doable i would have the energy to go you know it's like a 20 minute deep rest meditation gives you up to um, eight times the quality of rest you would get for a nap for the same amount of time so you come out of out of a meditation when you're really exhausted and you know you're reset that, that's that's just a powerful tool you know that's that's, that's almost like a, probably not best to use this kind of terminology but it's almost like a superhuman tool <laughs> i love that it's made me so adaptive to change that when things come about that uh, would otherwise really upset me or do upset me, I'm able to accept them either immediately or in a way shorter period of time than I could in the past. So I'm able to adapt to change and understand that it happens for a reason. And that um, uh, it's been great for me because I've been able to to sort of shift the way I look at incoming information, let's say news, it can be good news, you get a good email about something, bad news, you get a bad email about something. The way that my body reacts to it is pretty stable, I think, as a result of meditation. Good news, bad news, it's just news. It's not that I'm numb. It's really that I feel like I'm good either way. So, and there's a story that one of my meditation teachers uses that I like. talks about, he talks about, <laughs> I have to remember it if I'm going to share it. He talks about, uh a person who lives in a house who gets a knock on his door and the, the person says, Hey, great news. You've just won the lottery. And oh, the guy said, wow, oh, that's great. He said, well, my life was great before, but this sounds pretty cool. And then the guy comes back the next day and says, Hey, I'm so sorry, but uh, it's actually your neighbor that won the lottery. He says, Oh man, well, that's all right. My life was good before. and I'm still pretty cool. <laughs> and, uh, so that's that's a pretty extreme example, but it's that notion of being good either way that I've really connected with. And I can take this into dates. I can take this into business meetings. You know, I'll sit down at a date with someone that I'm really interested in. and 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 trust me, I'm willing to make that clear. But if I connect myself to this mindset of I'm good either way, I can be there on a date with someone and have a strong intention with no expectation because... If it doesn't work out with the person, I'll be fine. And that energy comes across. That's how you eliminate neediness. It comes off in in, uh, business meetings too. I'll sit down with someone that I really hope to close a deal with, and I can be very clear about my intentions in regards to wanting to work with them. But without an expectation attached to it, I can be good either way. It's either works out or it doesn't, but I'll be fine. So that's a really powerful mindset. You can't fake it. And sometimes I lose it. For the most part, I stay pretty connected to it. Meditation, consistent meditation practice keeps that strong in my life. So that's a good one. And the last one I'll share is that uh, um, meditation and its removal of stress in my body has allowed me to have a clearer connection between my gut, my heart, my brain. What I mean by that is I can hear my intuition more. So I don't struggle from indecision in the way that I used to. I mean, I would be in Bed Bath & Beyond before I was a meditator and I would start to sweat trying to figure out if I want to get the, you know, the, the, the teal towel or the charcoal gray towel. <laughs> you know, you ever sit down with someone and they can't decide what to eat at the restaurant, go back and forth. They want your opinion, they want their opinion, they want the waitress opinion. I know, look, that's fine. It's this is like not a life-changing thing, but, but uh, I've found that decision-making on a small scale has gotten much easier so when it comes to big decisions i can just go right to it follow my heart follow my gut and it's allowed me to live my life this is not easy but i'm getting better at it live my life based on following my intuition and in the Vedic community they talk about following your charm it's the thing inside of you that says this feels right and the teaching and the the worldview that i am living by is you act on that feeling, you act on that intuition and that charm before you allow yourself to talk yourself out of it. you know so if uh, i'll use I'll use cantor as an example. My charm was real in a really powerful way was saying it's time to move on. The thought of just resetting felt right in my in my gut and in my heart, but if I let intellect kick in too much, it would totally set me back and confused me because my intellect would say, oh, you can't leave. It's been nine years. Why would you leave it nine years? You're an expert. Build on that, exp- on that expertise. Uh, you can't leave. You don't know what you want to do next. What are you going to do? Sit around? That's a terrifying thought to me. I've never experienced life without either school or having a job. What am I going to do? You know, all these things would kick in. And a lot of time, our intellect prevents us from following our charm which is why a lot of people stay in relationships that maybe they shouldn't be in or stay at you know, jobs that aren't the right fit for them. I've been learning that when I act on my charm and follow it and put my faith in it, that the universe uh, sort of thanks me for trusting it and repays me in really sort of magical ways versus not listening to it and staying stagnant. Things usually get pretty flat line. So following charm is is really just about evolutionary change. It's about evolving in the most colorful, meaningful way you can. And I try to live my life by that. And the more I meditate, the more I
1: can hear the charm, the easier it becomes to follow it. I'm pretty sure that whatever that voice is that served you so well through your life, won't be long before it shows you the next thing to do until then, enjoy, the, enjoy this time. Enjoy this time while, uh, while it all falls into place. Cause it always has before.
2: I think it always does, you know. You just got to believe and be patient. Put your, Open yourself up, right? That's what I'm trying to do.
1: Thank you so much, man. This has been great. It was a great chat. Thank you yeah, for having me, buddy. No worries. I'm going to shoot your photo on that camera there. Cool. All right. Well, that was, that was Jesse Israel. Find him on Twitter at Jesse Israel, J-E-S-S-E-I-S-R-A-E-L. He is a lovely man and uh, does very, very interesting work and good work, as you heard there. But if you're keen on perhaps coming on a bike ride with me in Sydney, doing a Cyclones ride, super fun, um, let me know. Send me an email. Sendosheremail at gmail.com. We only need about 15 people, it seems. So we could always do that. That'd be fun. Wouldn't that be nice? Go for a ride. Go for a nice bike ride in Sydney. Uh, We can start it in Sydney, and then if it doesn't work, if it works there, we'll see if we can do it somewhere else in Melbourne or Brisbane wogger I don't know we'll find somewhere but yeah send me an email I read every email that you send me to send your email at gmail.com okay so I have to actually think of bikes I have to get on my bike and go to work right now uh, I am loving that at the moment I am loving riding to work uh, I love it I love it absolutely love it it's super duper as well as riding home at the end of the day because you get home and your brain is empty and it's just house of cards time oh yeah alright Take care of yourself. Look after yourself this week and be kind, sleep well, dream of beautiful things. So grateful you're here. Talk to you next week.